This week on VFM, we're talking to Sir Steve Webb about his time in politics, policy, and what value for money means to him. everyone and welcome to the 49th yes 49th episode <laughs> of vfm the pensions podcast and you know we're, we're revising um, how we number these as well because we're in a bit of a transition aren't we nico so which is also series two episode four and if you yes. had the specials in i think it's the 55th episode that we've recorded between us since we started last january <laughs> it depends how you count them it, it depends does depend. how you count them it's the actual thing isn't it I, and, and as usual i could not be more delighted to be joined <laughs> joined by you, Nico, for another Pensions Podcast on a cold, windy, wet um, Friday yes. morning. Well, thank you. Well, thank you. It's great to be here uh, weekly, as ever, back back for episode four of the, the second series. I think that's how we should call it, the, the, the new accounting standard. It's yeah, accountants yeah. we should play, not, not actuaries. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and um, before we introduce our um, very esteemed Nico guest, um, mm. um, I've got a bit of a follow-up from last week's um, podcast. Oh, here we go. Because okay. you remember we had um, Chris Curry um, yeah. on the podcast, who talked a lot about the Pensions Policy Institute and the fantastic work that they did. Mm. I just happened to be at a Pensions Policy Institute um, strategy day yesterday. Um, I'm one of the trustees and we're talking yeah. about um, the future of the PPI and how it can continue doing more of, of what it does. And I bumped into Danielle Baker. Um, uh -huh. I know that um, you love the PPI <laughs> pens. I think everyone yes. loves the PPI pens. This, this doesn't really work on a podcast, but I'm showing Nico now um, a, oh, a, 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 a handful of PPI pens that I've got especially for you, Nico. So Thank when you. I next see you in person, you'll get some of those. Anyway. Uh, it's uh, like my birthday. It's it like, like my your, birthday. It is like your birthday. Yeah. Let's move swiftly on from birthdays. Yeah. Um, so absolutely delighted. Couldn't be more pleased to be joined by mm. Sir Steve Webb. Uh, former pensions minister, and I think that was between 2010 and 2015 in the coalition government, but he was very much on the Lib Dem side of things. Here, here. Hmm. Um, and um, Steve is now um, at LCP, and um, he's joined the merry band of people within the pensions industry after you know that that, <laughs> that political stint. And it's and it's great to have you within the pensions industry, Steve. So welcome yeah. to the podcast. Thanks very much, gents. Morning to both of you. It's yeah, it's like that kind of difficult second album, isn't it? You know, what to do after you've been a pensions minister? <laughs> you, you, you seem to have done pretty well on it, though, Steve. Yeah. So far. Well, what's been nice is the diversity, really. So, so it was nice to move into the private sector, but the step to working for a mutual Royal London was mm. not as big mm. as it might have been, and now mm. we're for a partnership which has its own culture. So. Uh, uh, I'm not sure I quite got to capitalism red in tooth and claw quite yet. <laughs> Is that your next move? We'll, we'll take <laughs> you, take oh, you no. into... <laughs> so, so, let the cat out the bag. Yeah, so, so that fine, we've got, it's Goldman Sachs next. That's where, that's where you're going. <laughs> you said that. I yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that five years of... Uh, Blue yellow didn't totally indoctrinate you then, Steve. That's what we're saying, isn't it? <laughs> I, I do remember having some conversations with my conservative counterparts because there was no there was no point 
in the department in being particularly tribal and I was yeah. massively outnumbered mm -hmm. so just occasionally they have a political meeting in the department and they'd ask me to leave because it's a you know, conservative political meeting and uh, you know I would leave and there'd be you know 17 people left in the room kind of thing. So, <laughs> so you know we, we had to get on to be honest and I remember one of my former ministerial colleagues so there are two extremes so one of them said to me we hate the Lib Dems and we'd like to destroy you but if we have to have Lib Dems we're glad it's you <laughs> which I think I think was a compliment and then somebody yeah. else said to me Steve I don't understand you know you, you seem so reasonable what is it that makes you not a conservative <laughs> <laughs> so we had a few interesting chats my my kind of uh, my only insight is uh, in the thick of it <laughs> um you know, the sort of warring uh kind of Tory and, and Lib Dem ministers uh you know shouting at each other across offices I'm I'm sure that's not true at all but uh does I, that, sure does that some, any sort of representation yeah. yeah yeah I'm sure there's some shouting at the center shall we say but, yeah. um you know out in the periphery out in the uh, you know the hinterlands you kind of got on with it really yeah, yeah. Um, there's probably more shouting between uh, DWP and the Treasury, Steve, but we won't go into that a bit yeah, later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, well, welcome, welcome to the podcast. Yeah. Um, great to have you on. And mm. um, as, as as ever, we start with the news. So mm. it's been a bit of a busy start to the year when it comes to pensions. And I think you've got a couple of stories for Steve. Yeah, so the first was the annual update by the Pensions and Lifetime Saving Association, your, your old muckers, the PLSA, <laughs> of their retirement living so, standards. It's the NAPF back in the day. Well, <laughs> that's, that's when it was a proper trade body. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it, what was striking was that you kind of imagine it's just going to be, a you know, pump it through the social machine, add a bit of inflation and move on kind of thing. And that's not what happened. So hmm. in particular, the, the the middle one, I think it's moderate living standard, hmm. went up by about 8,000 quid, which was kind of like whoa you know these yeah. are sort of are very much a moving target and even the minimum one it's quite funny we'll probably come back to the state pension at some point but the gap between the state pension and the plsa minimum standard has gone up so right. for all the stuff you hear about we can't afford the state pension it's too expensive it's too generous and so on it's now a smaller proportion of what the minimum people think you need to live on it than it was mm. a year ago so it's just mm. worth keeping that context i think um, yeah. So I think, I guess I had two thoughts on the PLSA things. I mean, so one is I'm really glad that they do them and that they're based on something people can grasp because so mm. much in pensions, nobody can, mm. is intangible. So you can actually go on a programme and say, well, you know, do you want the foreign holiday or do you want to just date it to Clacton? You yeah. know, it gets people thinking, so I like that. I think the other impressive thing is the way it's been adopted by the industry because mm. how many pension reports sit on shelves? And this one, you know, you find on pension statements, it's talked about in the media and full credit to whoever kind of after your time, I imagine, Darren. But, you know, full credit to whoever I, came up with it. I, I tell you, I tell you, Steve, I was part of the working group. Yeah, and you know this as well, because one of your colleagues, George Curry, was also part of that working group because he was mm. a staffer. Um, and, yeah. um, you know, one of the things that we did was look at the um, some of the lessons from Australia and um, yeah. Yeah. reported it over from there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a good it's it's a great initiative, and and like you, I'm, I've been surprised at how widely adopted it, it actually has been. Mm. And I get involved in a number of discussions, and people, you know, when people are talking about 
tools, calculators, and how best to present things to people. And you know, the PLSA retirement living standards are not far away from those conversations. And if they, yeah. if people aren't thinking about that from the start, the concept gets introduced quite quickly, and that's that's mm. fantastic. But yeah, I'd go further as well. So, so because uh, you know, I've just been an independent consultant for a period of time, and uh, I had two decumulation clients that I was developing uh, products with. Uh, and the living standards work really framed uh, the concept of a lowercase d default. Um, so, so where should we be pitching this thing that this disengaged member is at least framing their decisions around, um, if not uh, executing, you know, very simply to get into? And it was it was based around living standards, yeah. and and you know, not just from me being a fan, mm. but the, the the clients kind of bringing that that idea there as well. Um, yeah. And I see that as when I look across at other people's decumulation ideas, I mm. see that quite a lot. So, so yeah, very influential, very influential. And I guess the one the one challenge and the one thing I'd hoped them might address this year is that is the big elephant in the room, which is housing costs. Mm. So, you know, these are living standards assuming you paid off your mortgage. Mm. Yeah. And so, you know, in a world where a, you know, first time buyers take out a mortgage in their 30s of an average of 30 years plus. So you're starting to think about outstanding mortgages, although they probably get cleared by lump sums, I suspect, but more, you know, the private renters. And obviously the PPI did a great piece of research before Christmas on the growth in private mm. renting and retirement. And mm. that, you know, they blow these numbers out of the water. So yeah, you know, the moral is don't be a private renter in retirement. But you know. Well, yeah, you know, yeah. And, and that's where, um, you know, thinking about how to join up some of the wider societal issues and pensions is so important. Yeah. Mm. Um, because you know, like, yes, you can you can uh, you can have a debate and you can have a discussion around the house, housing market, planning policy, you know, whether it's right to be, you know, to, to have that aspiration to get um, on the housing ladder. Is that model right going forward? But it probably is. Um, but it has so many knock-on consequences. Yeah. yeah. Whether it's to community, whether it's to pensions, um, pension saving, but also at that at that far end, that's where it's, mm. um, you know particularly um can, can can make that huge difference i think the other thing steve about the retirement living standards is blimey you need a half you need a pretty big pot don't you to even yeah. to, to, <laughs> to to maintain to, to 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 get to that sort of moderate position you know mm. um i always used to think that um we used to and I think you might want to talk about the lifetime allowance and spoiler alert but 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 there's a, we've got to have a sort of sensible discussion um, on you know what is the what is the value of pension saving that we're aiming for yeah both mm. from a social policy perspective but also from a tax system perspective because I remember when I was at the treasury like you know we were looking at reducing the lifetime allowance and I think I was involved in you know freezing it which was controversial enough and then it went from mm. 1.8 million to 1 million and there was rational arguments for that um, but 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 now it's uh, you know. Does a million buy you that much when it comes to uh, you know a decent retirement um, outcome and an annuity and yeah. stuff? And I'd never thought I'd be saying that. <laughs> you, yes, you well, are allowed to save an, another million in tax privileged ISAs as well over your lifetime. You so, are, aren't you? Yeah. yeah. You know, Is there a lifetime allowance on ISAs? But, oh, I didn't know. No, that. no, but you know, there's an annual. As in, as in twenty, years, yeah, 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 okay. 50, yeah, 20s yeah. kind of thing. So anyway, um, yeah, yeah. yeah so, so yeah, that was that was the one that surprised. You know, it was just a yeah. sheer volume of savings that you actually need to start hitting those targets. And yeah. you know, yeah. when, when when do we start thinking about increasing contributions? Because it's not a good time at the moment. And you know, that'll be true forever, is. though, will it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I just think we need a timetable. Maybe not, you know, start the change this year or next year. But, you know, when I look back at automatic enrollment, we were in the clear till about 2019 from legislation passed, you know, in the early 2000s because mm. we had that roadmap. And when the law was passed, nobody cared what the contribution rate was in 2018, 19. Mm. So you could right. do that. And the big mistake, I mean, arguably at the time, but certainly since, was not to set out the roadmap beyond until you got mm. there. And that's caused us to have, you know, seven wasted years so far. Yeah. And, and yeah. it's like, yeah. um, it's like, it's, it's easier just to keep that momentum going, isn't it? Yeah. Rather than yeah. stopping. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, so I think, I think they tried it in Australia, didn't they? Where they had a much longer and smoother uptick. Mm. And I know they, they had some they got pauses. Stuck. Yeah, they got, they got stuck. stuck in Australia. Yeah. And I think they won't be able to push it much further. I think the move from nine to sort of ten and a half or whatever it's going to be was really hard. That last mm. slice. Mm. So, so where do you think we should get to? Uh, I mean, that's the million uh, the dollar thing question I'd, right there. Yeah. There I mean, is. the first thing I would do is level up. So it's got to be five mm. plus five and, and yeah. six plus six. You know, I, th I think, yeah. and the beauty of that is that, you know, yes, yeah, some employers will take that off pay and it's not a free lunch, it's not free money, but it seems to me you can get more money going in and without the extra risk of opt out. Mm. Mm -hmm. So that's got to be the right combination. And I think it's just a sense of fairness and it makes the messaging simpler. Every pound you put in, your employer puts in pound, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, you know, I would perhaps have some sort of floor, maybe six plus six when you start work and then some sort of auto escalation. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. that you know, if you get a pay rise, possibly, and we might come back to this, but possibly once you're over 35 or something, I, you know, I'm not convinced expecting 28 year olds to put 10% yeah. in each is a good idea because you know you've got to avoid being a renter in retirement and mm. you know all that um but you know at some point in your career some auto escalation but going in at 12 wouldn't be bad mm. Mm. Yeah, we talked a little bit uh, i can't remember which guest it was with darren but uh, about thinking about essentially setting out a sort of statutory matching framework uh but not setting an expectation that the contribution be, would be within it so just just enabling people who engaged to get something more from the employer by by statute mm. um but yeah so i i i, I think i can claim the uk's uh, first auto escalation policy which i put in place with with barclays when i was um working for the trustee so so we negotiated Excellent. quite hard at that yeah um, very good they then, of course, used it to enable them to close the defined benefits scheme <laughs> because it meant that they could uh, essentially use the mechanisms I'd put in place to to sort of reverse escalate, so so increase the cost to the employee over time. Um, but uh, we did have good take up. We did have good take up. Um, quite whether people sort of stayed the course through the matching. It was three plus three, but through that kind of rate, um, I don't know. But uh, we did get thing, a bit. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And I think the other thing is defaulting in at the high rate and letting people lock down. So when they join, yes. so I think I think nationwide do that. Okay. From, yep. mem from memory, you know, you go in at whatever it is, seven plus seven or something like that. And if you want to put less in, that's okay. Mm -hmm. actually, you can guess what people actually do. So. Yes, that loss aversion, we used quite a lot in our communications. Um, so there was a lot about missing out. Um, a lot about, um, I guess, what we've now called uh, FOMO. Um, so, so, and the sort of peer comparison. Um, so, cartoons of two people, two Barclays employees, <laughs> chatting about their their matching contributions. You're happy happy days. I'm sure these are FCA compliant cartoons, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah. The FCA <laughs> wouldn't even even the acronym didn't exist in those days. <laughs> <laughs> You're ahead of the time, Nico. Ahead of your time. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so, so you you got another story, Steve? Mm. Yeah, well... Is it, um, is it about the LTA by any chance? It might be. I mean, it's probably not a state secret that we're, we're recording this on a Friday morning when the Telegraph has on its front page Labour set to carve out public sector professionals from the LTA. Uh, and that came after a story in the eye earlier in the week. So what happened was, uh, obviously, the LTA abolition was largely, quote, about the doctors. Hmm. You know, it may have been about lots of other things and the politics of it, but, you know, it's just this sense that you know, rightly or wrongly, there were a bunch of senior doctors, you know, breaching LTA limits, thinking, hang on, so if I work some more and add to this, I'm getting a massive tax charge on top of the tax mm. I pay and all the rest of it, and just saying, I've, I've had enough. And given the pressures on the NHS, we really don't want that. So if it's as simple as just getting rid of the LTA, it's kind of clean, and you know, you get that. Um, and the Labour Party, obviously, the day this was announced, and you have to remember, as you well know from the Treasury, Darren, that the budget isn't shown to the opposition in advance, I mean, it's shown mm. to the press largely, but it's not yep. shown to the opposition. <laughs> so on, on budget day, the leader of the opposition, not the shadow chancellor, has to respond. And all right, they knew the LTA was going to be lifted. They didn't know it was going to be abolished. Mm. And so they very quickly had to think, oh, what are we going to say? Well, this is a policy for the 1%, not the 99%. We ought to oppose yeah. it. And then the next day, they doubled down. Well, since then, I think they thought, oh, my goodness, what have we done? Mm. Because the policy doesn't really raise much money. Because if you bring it back, we did a, a pamphlet, a, a report at, at LCP on how might the Labour Party bring the LTA back. Mm. And I sat down with some really very, very clever people who really understand this stuff. And the more we looked at it, the more we thought, gosh, you know, it's not just cut and paste the stuff that was deleted, you know, reinsert it. Because they found it hard enough to delete it, yeah. it turns out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but bringing it back, you'd have to have transitional protection, all that yep. sort of stuff. So you wouldn't get much money for years. You'd get mm. all the grief up front and you might have the doctors retiring yep. early. So um, what they've said is, well, we would do something for the doctors. And then... The eye had a story saying, we've got this head teacher and he's, you know, head of a multi-academy trust and he's going to go before the election unless Labour do something. So they found the Labour Party who said, oh, yeah, no, we'll, we'll do something for him as well, kind of thing. And suddenly, you know, and it turns out air traffic controllers have been retiring early, right. you know, which I really care about, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, but the question is, obviously, you can't really write into tax law, you know, if you work for HM government, because it's like, well... Okay, so you're a head teacher, but a head teacher in a private school, that probably you're in the teacher's pension scheme, but you don't yeah. employ the state, you know, you just draw lines in weird places. And then mm -hmm. someone who earned exactly the same pounds and pence as you with the same pension as you, but you get a tax charge and they don't, that sounds a bit weird. So the only thing I think they could do, which would horrify people, is make the DB treatment even more favourable than it already is. I know. Yeah. So <laughs> just say, we take a DB pension and multiply it by 10, not 20 or something. Or yeah. I suppose the other thing you'd do is just have a whopping great LTA and just mm. be done with it. Yeah. But then then you get no money at all and you annoy everybody anyway. So they've got yeah. to pickle. It's, it's a pretty it's, pointless tax, isn't it? I mean, you know, we've got an input system for DC, which mm. makes sense. Mm. And then, you know, because we've got these two things on the shelf next to each other, we have to try and work out an equivalence, and that's an impossibility, right? So it's a bizarre world. <laughs> it is a bizarre world. And I remember at the time of A-Day, 
and I think you were uh, um, a fawn in the Treasury and DWP side in Parliament in those days. Uh, sure, I was still at school, if I remember right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember we used to get um, PQs coming in. And do you remember Evelyn Arnold? You must remember Evelyn. Yes, um, very who much was, so, yeah. um, Who was um, head of the, the state pension bit on DWP. And I used to get regular calls from her saying, he's asked another question. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what are we going to say to Steve in response to this? <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, and then the boot went on the other foot, didn't it, Steve? So that was, that was it. <laughs> um, so, sorry, that was for nothing. But um, I, I find this quite astonishing mm. because there's so many injustices in our tax system when it comes to the treatment of DB versus DC. And, um, you know, I, 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 I don't really have a view on the abol abolishment of the LTA. Is political yeah. posturing by the Tories. I don't think it makes that much difference, ultimately. All the numbers are just your behavioural consequences anyway. You don't actually really raise any any tax. Mm. It's just, you know, people in HMRC thinking through what the behavioural response and assumptions might be and stick them in the numbers. And you can never justify yeah. it. I think you do raise tax. I mean, obviously, we, yeah, we know the figures for the actual LTA charges, so we've mm. got that number. But as you rightly say, Darren, you know, there are people who realize they're bumping up against it and stop saving in a pension and we don't yeah. we just don't know how big that number is but yeah. I, I suspect you know it, i mean who knows how big that is but you know it, 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 they put a meaningful number on it when they abolished it i think what i was trying to say is if they brought it back it would be a long even if they did bring it back it would be a long time before it ramped up again yeah. because of yeah. Yeah. All the transition the protection who, if transition protection and the people who've acted in the interim you know the yeah. people yeah. You know, yeah. and of course, one possibility which I think is quite interesting is if they really were serious, you might have to have an emergency budget in the early days of a new government to mm. anti-forestall, as they yeah. say. Oh, you know, get to, yeah, <laughs> love a, a bit of love a bit of anti-forestalling legislation. <laughs> Listeners, Aaron is now salivating, and we're up. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but basically, you don't want everybody in week two of a Labour government shopping all their money through the system to avoid. You know, and then you really, really don't get any money. No, exactly. But, the, but well, just going back to PLSA living standards. So obviously we need to calculate on some sort of multiple to work out how to translate that. It's not far before you've run out of money uh, with an LTA of anything like what it where it was. It's not, you know, you're not. Are we genuinely thinking that the best way to, uh, you know, make the middle class pay for society is is to to you know discourage them from saving into pensions that's, that's ultimately what it gets to um and you know there's been mooted ni and pension uh payments or you know that they, they or you could have a, a more uh uh progressive tax on on pension payments or there's there's a whole number of different things you could do but the chilling effect on savings is very real it's very real and the fear of fiscal drag as well of that policy um so you know, it, and of course, if I do really well on in my investments yeah. <laughs> in my DC scheme, I'm penalised. How on earth mm. is that an incentive for us to invest in corporate Britain, which is, you know, an overt policy of both parties um, who, who may be forming the next government? So it's just it's so nonsensical. Uh, I get very frustrated by it. <laughs> I mean, the, the only hesitation I'd say is, you know, there is a danger of us living in our little bubble where we know people who've got yes. a million pension pots. And, you, you know, you, you referred to the middle classes, I think, Nico, and middle classes don't really have million pound pension pots. I mean, middle classes might be senior public servants with 20, you know, with big DB pensions, mm. some of them, yes. But in terms of DC, 
this ain't the middle class. But, but that's <laughs> today, right? So, so yeah, yeah, in a, in a yeah. world where people are auto enrolled as they leave university with their professional degrees and, uh, you know, take advantage of the matching contribution of the professional employer and work until 65 or 70, right? yeah. Yeah. then you will not have to have gone far but to get to a million pounds. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, for the avoidance of doubt, I have not yet hit a million pounds in my pension part. <laughs> uh, when we had Julius on, he said, we've all made a lot of money. And, we, uh, and it was like, no, no, we haven't, Julius. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Bless you. Um, but, uh, you know, in, unless I'd managed to put it all in, I don't know, uh, Meta 15 years ago, which I didn't. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, no, it's, it, it's just, we need... So here we are <laughs> maybe can i segue to my new story i was gonna say get on with it like uh... yeah yeah we, <laughs> we we need a holistic thought uh to set out uh policy and pensions and that's what i read uh the labor party is well that's what i read into what the labor party is uh uh proposing um so an announcement um that they'll undertake a pensions and retirement savings review comma if elected um so so i guess we've been here for a long time Darren and we seem to routinely call for a pensions commission mark II. um I guess the great hope is that it's a holistic enough b cross-party enough and c listen to and actually influences policy going forwards so that's that's quite a big exercise right but, but also you need someone really good to lead it don't you um, I don't know if we've got anyone in mind, Nico. Are you free, gents? Are you, uh... No, no. I was, I, was, I was thinking of our esteemed guests. You know, are you, are you free for, to do something like that, Steve? Well, that's, that's very kind of them. I think I think that you're right, Nico. They say a review of pensions and retirement policy in government. Mm. They don't mean a commission. They don't mean yeah. the new Turner Commission, do they? So I, I think it's. I mean, if you've been out of office fourteen years, the odds that you're going to bring the Tories into your pensions commission yeah. is to the birds. Yeah. So it's going to be in government, <laughs> internal. But you know, it is good that it's holistic. There was a joke in 1997 that Tony Blair hit the ground reviewing. <laughs> yeah, when you've been in opposition for so long you kind of just mm. haven't thought and you haven't got the resources of the civil service in opposition yeah. and all that stuff so i think it makes sense to say we're going to look at this stuff holistically hopefully mm. across treasury and dwp together that's clearly very important involving both the main regulators you know because we've got all sorts of issues around that um but i you know i'm not expecting any kind of grand inclusive long-term vision or anything like that i mean mm. it's just it's just deciding what they're going to do in the next parliament really mm. let's just hope it's joined up yeah yeah um so short-term fixes <laughs> tax grabs because obviously the, the tax and spend it might be a bit of that problem. yeah it might be a bit of that yeah yeah <clears throat> um I, what, what do you hope for <laughs> dare i ask <laughs> oh I, well i mean i hinted at it there i do think once and for all, we need to join together the governance and regulation of pensions. You know, mm, so for yeah. example, I was responsible for trust-based pensions, but not contract-based pensions. Mm. Right. So if I wanted yeah. to do the charge cap, I yeah. could legislate for trust-based pensions myself with DWP legislation. I had to get the FCA and the Treasury to pass FCA regs uh, and so on to do the trust based, the contract basis it's just balmy so yeah having yeah. pension policy that fragmented now i mean you know do you put pension policy wholly in the treasury that would raise issues i think darren's shaking mm -hmm. his head having been there but, it's, but i mean is that is that even worse than the status quo darren i don't know i think um what i really liked and i'm going back a few years now 
but what I really liked is the there's there was healthy tension between DWP and the Treasury on on stuff. There was unhealthy tension as well, yeah. Mm. Um, but I think sometimes just having a slightly different mindset and coming from slightly different positions, if yeah. it's done in yeah. the right way, can really improve policy outcomes. Now that that involves both sides, you know, working together and working together effectively and trying to do the right thing. When mm. Treasury goes into not over our dead body mode, yeah, mm. um, then it doesn't work so effectively. And there are a number of times when Treasury will just decide to do things. And the, you know, I think you mentioned about the press finding out things about for, about things before the the leader of the opposition. Um, quite often, the press would find out things before people in the own cabinet, um, you know, would, mm. uh, would 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 know what's happening in the budget and stuff. Um, so I think, um, you know, like. I wouldn't give it to the Treasury because I think it just changes that dynamic. Um, I, yeah, I, I think there's a case for a savings department or it, it probably isn't just a, a savings by itself. But I think yeah. having that sort of fiscal tension, yeah, um, and, you know, Treasury is the housekeeper in terms of the purse, yeah, and, and playing that corner and thinking about the economics of it. But then what I loved about DWP is just think it was just coming from it from a totally different perspective, a lot more yeah. altruistic, less markets oriented, you know, a lot more paternalistic. You know, it was, it was, it was almost like, you know, welfare versus economics, if that, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Um, but you mm -hmm. get to better answers by doing that. Um, but you made a good point there, I think about a savings rather than just pensions, because that's, mm -hmm. That's the risk, isn't it? You know, where does the lifetime ISA fit in all of this? What mm. about short-term savings? Because I came across some research the other day. So I'm on this. I, I end up on lots of steering groups for lots of academic research projects. You know, PPI Resolution Foundation, IFS, that kind of thing. Demos, mm. which is fascinating, and it keeps. You know, I'm a, a lapsed academic, so that's kind of fun. <laughs> really? And, and um, Resolution Foundation, I think it was, flagged to me some research which showed that when you put up mandatory or default pension contributions, one of the hits is to short-term savings. Uh, and also to, to debt to debt. So some mm -hmm. people, you know, when they have when they sort of have to put more money in a pension, haven't actually got the money and end up running up bigger debts than they would have done. They don't directly, you know, literally borrow to pay the pension contribution, but you know, yeah, money's yeah. tighter. And you know, mm -hmm. and I think if you only look at pen if your pensions through and through, well, of course you just want to ramp up and ramp up and ramp up pension contributions. Mm -hmm. But I know in my spare time I do some debt advice and I know the problems people could get into if they haven't got short-term savings yeah. so we absolutely you know it shouldn't just be a pensions and retirement review it should be a savings and retirement review. Mm -hmm. so, uh, yeah good corrective Darren. and um yeah. and, and, and i think um you know but where do you stop because we talked about housing yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. there's obviously social care that you know yeah. um yeah. it's all of these um all of these sort of different areas it's all so interlinked um, but I think you're. I think you're right, Steve, because there is such a, a, um, a. Well, you've got markets and you've got the private sector, really coming together quite strongly with the state pension system and the benefit system, and you know thinking about that savings holistically, yeah, would be a start. Yeah, it mm. probably isn't. It, it probably doesn't go far enough given everything else that's going on, and we'd love to. And you, you probably do need to add housing in there and that at some point, but. You know, let's let. So we're not calling for a pension commission, Nico. Um, we're calling no, we partners. are. <laughs> no, not pensions. A not commission. Just pensions. Oh, right. 
an everything commission. <laughs> an everything commission. Everything. Yeah, but but so, so just, I mean, uh, maybe on a different tack. So because so, we're now in this sort of managerial mode of politics um, and uh, there's huge consensus um, between the two uh, main political parties that essentially we're in, a, we're in a bad state of affairs when it comes to, to public finances and therefore it's sort of tinkering. Um, you know, really what we're talking about is the role of the state in uh, that welfare piece. I loved your refinement there, Darren, to pull welfare out of the considerations of economics. And I, and I think uh, that's that's probably pra practically true, mm. but we're disappointed a lot of academic economics, right? Oh, massive, massively, um, yeah. yeah. But I agree, it's practically true, right? So um, economics has gone down in a very strange direction over the last 40, 50 years. So this is this is, we don't have elections fought on ideology of the role of the state anymore i think maybe there's subtext in a number of different policy pieces but i'm sort of wondering whether you know we can ever get back to that or are we in a sort of space where we're just about kind of refinements of tinkering and therefore the interlinkages become very complicated because there's no sort of north star to say actually the state should be doing more or the state should be doing less the state just is yeah, <laughs> i mean isn't this isn't that what you want Mm. in the sense in pensions because you know the last thing you want is you know so the analogy with industrial policy would be nationalization privatization nationalization mm. you don't yeah. want yeah. that roller coaster so in a way mm. i did a talk the other day and i said actually i've just written an article for for money marketing which basically said the next election matters less than you think right pension mm. you know all right the triple lot may or may not carry on depending who wins may, may well do yeah. regardless of who wins but actually if the next lot look at the current set of things on the pensions agenda and don't kind of come up with a whole new list, for goodness yes. sake, you know, but actually work through what's already there, keep what they want, drop a few things, maybe that's more continuity, isn't it? Mm -hmm. that, you know, do we want a raving ideologue running pensions? We've tried that. <laughs> <laughs> you did very well, though. <laughs> that's very good, yeah. I, was gonna I, love, you, I love the mostly. <laughs> I, love, I love the mostly, okay. <laughs> um yeah let's come back to that <laughs> what was your new story Darren? my new story so um when steve was pensions minister um I mean, hang on I, what's I, your I, news story no no this is this is my news story okay, this is my okay. news story um you used to talk um on the circuit yeah um about operation big fat pension pop yeah um and you know that was all about um, that went well didn't it <laughs> okay, okay, okay. well it was it was um because there was a big debate about um consolidators or popfellas member and mm. you know all, all of that at the time and and you know like you you guys did lots of work on it at dwp and i think you even got some primary we legislation for it. you got yeah, you yeah, actually yeah. Led, you made a decision yeah. and legislated it on yeah. it yeah yeah and, you know, so, so let's be generous. Let's say that was 2015. It must have been 2014 or 2013. 2014 yeah. Act. 2014 Act, right. Um, mm -hmm. And here we are. Oh, what's my maths? Uh, like 10 years later. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we have an announcement that we, the Department for Work and Pensions has launched a group to tackle the issue on deferred small pension pots. Um, <laughs> Steve Webb. Discuss... Another group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, another one. Yeah, yeah. Darren's just bitter he's not on it, really. Yeah. <laughs> Are you, Steve? Are you? Have they let you on? No, no, no. Oh, they don't let me anyway. No, no. I'm, I'm very, un very unsound. I mean, I think the thing about 
portfolio's member. So so just just for terminology, just for points of doubt, there's so many different things. Is literally you change job and by default your pot accumulated pot goes to your new provider unless you opt out. That's portfolio's mm. member. Yeah. And we mm. did prime legislation for that in 2014. Right, yeah. Had I survived as pensions minister, we would have implemented it. Funnily enough, that's an even better idea now than it was then mm-hmm. because of the dashboard. Yeah. Because yeah. you know we will now have soon an infrastructure with lots of pipes connecting pretty much every pension scheme bar the tiniest ones into the centre. You know, so actually portfolio's member becomes so much easier to do than when we first thought of it. Mm. So, mm. you know, I still think that's the right answer. And and partly because when we looked at it in 2014, I didn't have a view as to the right answer. When we, we, it was genuinely open, evidence-based, consultative. Mm. We looked at the options and said, you know, we think this one's the best one. We also tried it with the public and the public understood it which is mm. an important test. You know, they kind of got the idea that you don't leave the money behind. Mm. It yep. comes with you. You have to keep track of all your past jobs, notify your past employers if you change your address, the fact you've got married, divorce, all that stuff. It just comes with you. Now, yeah. people used to say, oh, well, what if you get auto-transferred into a rubbishy scheme? Well, to which my answer was, well, you shouldn't have rubbishy You know, if, if we think we've got rubbishy schemes, deal with it. Yeah. Um, so I still think that would be a better solution and maybe a change of government's the time to revisit that, than what we've now got, which is which is three separate infrastructures. We're going to have the dashboard infrastructure, but they're going to have the micro, which is what you're talking about, the micro pot consolidation mm. via some sort of clearinghouse. And then we're going to have potentially a choice-based model with another clearinghouse from employers to, you know, and it's like, who's paying for this? How long is it all going to take? Yeah. How complicated is it going to be? Whereas if you just accumulate your one big pot with your current employer, with an mm. opt-out, that yeah, nothing's perfect. Of course, mm. it's not perfect. Yeah. But it seems to be the, the best best answer. I do yeah. remember Steve. Um, there was a select committee um, that were looking at um, small pots, and I think you were the you and the minister at the time, and you were on you weren't on the committee, but you were invited to the committee, and you were sitting next to the chair, and I was giving evidence on our position on um, small pots, and I was very much you know consolidators i was at the people's pension at the time i think and you know we were we were quite worried about the um and the admin um aspects of, of doing some of this because the infrastructure just wasn't there and i think you're mm. right that the debate has changed slightly now um some of the core fundamentals um, have, have changed but e- equally we were absolutely running scared around the economics of some of mm. this because basically we were just managing so so many small pots yeah, now, yeah. we didn't want to keep managing those um those so so many small pots <clears throat> but if you had um you know the, the the value of the transfer would have been incredibly important to us as an organization because you know and what really made us nervous was that um operation big fat pot because while it might have made sense yeah total makes sense from a public policy perspective you know if you've got um pots above a certain amount moving around in those early days of auto enrollment yeah. that yeah, would yeah. have that yeah. would have hurt us but i remember you um you were you were you were very you know you were very kind to me but you did ask me a killer question um <laughs> Um, which I, I, I didn't think you were there to ask questions as you were the minister. But, um, you obviously had such a good relationship with the committee anyway. No, it was a... weird. I mean, just, just to explain what was going on there. So what they started to do in parliamentary process was when an act was going through, historically, just the minister set it out and the opposition challenged. Mm. And they decided it would be good for the committee studying the bill to have experts such as yourself, Darren, giving independent evidence. 
but I was a member of that committee because I was the minister. So we all sat right. around the horseshoe table as the ministers of the public, members of the public bill committee asking experts. So I got to ask some of my questions, which is great. I know you did. Yeah. <laughs> you just had that, that Steve Webb smile on your face as you answered the question. <laughs> so, 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 so anyway, um, we, we've talked a bit about uh, politics and, um, mm. and, and, and that, but you know, how did you, how did you get into politics? How did you get into pensions? Like, you know, what 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 has driven you to get to where you are now? Yeah, I, so I've always been a numbers person. You know, I think I got that from my dad, and uh, yeah, I've always loved facts and figures and analysis and statistics. And my first job was with the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Mm-hmm. So I had nine years of number crunching and and learning how to explain complicated stuff to the media. You know, so it's kind of feeling you understand it enough to explain it in simple terms to someone who's got mm-hmm. to explain it to other people kind of thing. So they were good skills to learn. And then after a while, I kind of got a bit frustrated because it is my formative years in that role were in the late 80s. And Mrs. Thatcher was at her peak and I was doing statistics on poverty and poverty was going up every year. And I kind of at one point said to one of my colleagues, well, what, what do we think about this? And he said, well, we right. don't. That's not our job. You know, we we give everyone the ammunition and they fire it kind of thing. And I thought, well, mm. yeah, it needs to be done, but I'm not sure I'm the person to do it. So we got to 1992 and that was 13 years of the Conservatives. And the assumption was that there would be a change of government at that point, yeah. and there wasn't. Mm. And that was the moment I decided to get involved in politics. I decided that I had, I had enough and I wanted to actually try and shape things. Now, mm. um, the Lib Dems were a good fit for me, but also you know, I knew what I wasn't. I wasn't a Conservative. I could, I suppose, have possibly joined the Labour Party at the time, but it was kind of still quite sort of post-Michael Foote, mm. Nick mm. it, doing mm. yeah. a bit, you know, so Lib Dems are a better fit. And the other thing is that working for think tanks, the smaller parties are more dependent on things like think tanks. The bigger parties have got a bit of resource, but the Lib Dems would engage more with like FES because they needed you know, free research. Kind of thing. So I got to know people, Ed Davey, you know, was a researcher for the Lib Dems at the time, you know, people like that. And so I joined the party, <clears throat> got involved in national policy making more than anything, really. And then um, I served on something called the Commission on Social Justice that the late John Smith set up. So sort of mm-hmm. Labour, big tent thing. Mm-hmm. I was sort of a token Lib Dem number cruncher on it, I suppose. And I got to meet people like David Miliband, Patricia Hewitt, and those sorts of people who were involved in that, all before then being MPs. And I kind of found that fascinating. And Patricia Hewitt, funnily enough, former Labour cabinet minister now, said to me, if you're going to stand, stand in 97, because I was saying, oh, yeah, I'll leave it a bit, you know, et cetera. Mm, right. I said, no, go for it. So I thought, all right. And so I, um, we moved to Bristol as a family and um, I looked around where we were and the sort of the West was reasonably positive territory. And we moved near a seat called North Avon, which Lib Dems have done well in local government, but never really in national government. And mm. I got selected as a candidate. <clears throat> so I then had to step down from the IFS because the IFS are non-partisan, which is fair enough. So I taught for two years at Bath University. I got a chair in social policy. So that's that's where the prof bit comes from. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and then when they, when they appointed me, I said, look, you know, I'm standing for parliament in a couple of years time, but you don't need to worry, you know, I won't win. Another <laughs> um, well, broken promise, you know. And um, <clears throat> you know, and I used to say, I you know, I represented the badminton horse trials, the Beaufort Hunt and Chipping Sotbury. Right. You know, this is not natural Lib Dem territory, really. But much to my surprise, we overcame a ten thousand majority. So, so I arrive in Parliament in ninety-seven to answer your question, and um, nobody in Parliament likes 
facts, figures, pensions, numbers, tax, benefits, all that stuff. It's like, oh, God, you know, will somebody else do that? Uh, and here I turn up. It's like, Steve, right, you can do DWP. You know, you can do the next <laughs> Social Security Act. And you just sucked in. And once you start doing it, you mm. start to know the subject, you know. And you discover, you arrive at Westminster thinking you're kind of God's gift. And you discover that you're nobody. You know, right. nobody they just want you to, they just want you to vote. You know, they yeah. don't care. What, you know, so you have to either specialize have a thing you know so some people really specialize on their constituency i had a friend who was you know called himself the voice of colchester right. and all he was there to do was talk about colchester which the novelty wore off after a while but you know that's a perfectly <laughs> legitimate thing to do yeah. but it wasn't it wasn't me so i became the sort of pensions and benefits and tax kind of geek if you like mm -hmm. um and and then 2010 happened and there was a steve webb shaped hole because mm. Only two Conservatives lost their seat at the 2010 election. One of them was Nigel Waterson, who was the, Lib the Tory pension spokesperson. He lost yeah. the Lib then, so I think he had a bad night that night, to be fair. Mm -hmm. uh, so when forming ministerial roles, who was going to be, what was the Lib Dem in the DWP going to do? It was obviously going to be pensions, because there, was there wasn't right. an embittered Conservative in Parliament thinking that should be me. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, and I hinted gently to my side that I'd quite fancy a go, and much to my amazement, that's what happened. Yeah, that must have been a fascinating period. Um, just the, the the negotiation of the coalition deal, uh, you know, as an outsider, the, the, you know, I remember the Rose Garden. <laughs> so, well, so, I was very, very naive, yeah. Nico, at the time. So David Laws and people like that, and Danny Alexander, were negotiating the mm. deal. And I just never occurred to me to try and be involved in that right. to try and shape it and yeah. so so they they negotiated the triple lock into the coalition agreement which i then implemented right yeah because uh, it had been in the lib dem manifesto you know mm -hmm. and it's mm -hmm. very funny now when you hear the debate about the tories triple lock and all that stuff <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. oh it is it is, it is rewriting history some of it isn't it Steve? Yeah. Yeah, yeah you know it really yeah. is but, but... But I, I have a certain mischievous glee when every year the triple lock just keeps going and everyone keeps yeah. saying, it's a terrible thing and we ought to scrap it and on it goes. And yeah. I just think, oh, what a shame. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, because there was a lot of uncertainty and there was a lot of sense. Obviously, the, the, the financial crisis was maybe not raging in the markets at the yeah. time, but a lot of fear that yeah. we were on the edge of it raging again. Because um, Alistair Darling had done a very good job, I think, um, coming in and and steadying the ship. And I was, as I said earlier, I was at Barclays at the time, and there was the sense that every Monday you might come in and be nationalised, um, which was, <laughs> you know, quite interesting. Um, wow. And as you watch the towers fall around us, um, and, uh, you know, that's, it's, it's, but that had been a little bit earlier, and then the uncertainty over the election, um, the 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 uncertainty we hadn't had the coalition for you know a full generation right we hadn't had a hung parliament in a full generation um and so a lot of nervousness around it um and then yeah this sort of you know deal with the devil right to 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 bind the lib dems to the the mast of uh <laughs> the tory ships sailing through the sirens i've lost the metaphor there slightly there you have you have, yeah, yeah but just going back, going back to, the, to the market scene yeah. uh i mean you have to remember you know so the elections on the thursday friday morning it becomes apparent that nobody's running the country mm. and over the weekend we were under a lot of pressure because people were saying the markets are going to go you know, yeah, everything's going yeah. to be in free fall on Monday morning. You know, you've got to have a deal done by Sunday night. Well, we we didn't, but we did it rather more quickly than the Belgians do. Which yeah. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Two years or something. Well, and the Dutch are still going as well. And yes. you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. But, um, the the triple lock policy, you know, because um, I know you were implementing it, Steve, but um, you know, it, it did have um, one or two fiscal consequences that the Treasury was scrutinising. <laughs> um, and I have to say, it was the fast. No, you know, usually getting something like that through the Treasury would be it would be horrendous. Yeah, you you just would not happen. Yeah, and every trick in the book could be used to delay it or whatever, or you know, no minister that type of thing. You, you'd, you'd be aware of all that. <laughs> That's very um, brave. But, 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 but because it was so totemic as part of that coalition agreement deal, mm. it was probably the most expensive um, fiscal commitment that got waved through with very, very, very little scrutiny um, mm. because it was think, totally think, political. Yeah. What we were told at the time was that the Tories asked the Treasury about the triple lock and the Treasury sort of said, well, think about it. Labour had already pledged to restore the earnings link. So the two of the three legs effectively already were there. in place. And then the other bit was a two and a half percent floor. And, you know, inflation was or earnings was kind of always going to be at least two and a half percent, wasn't it? Yeah. So it was almost like a free lunch. And I think yeah. the feedback mm -hmm. from the Treasury was, you know, for this parliament, yeah. it not really matter very much. And yeah. that's part of the way it went through the funny thing is in the first nine years each of the three legs of the triple lock got used three times right. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people know that um and i suppose my argument is you know the reason it was needed in 2010 was 30 years of decline mm. so 1980 Mr. thatcher breaks the earnings link pensions mm. fall and fall and fall and fall relative to the thing now replacing which is your wages we've now had 13 years to try and recover the damage mm. now david willett's on your podcast a couple of weeks ago said um yeah, job's done. We've had the triple lock, you know, the pension's fine now. And yet earlier in this conversation, we remarked that the pension is now further behind what the PLSA thinks is the minimum standard of living. You know, so is the job done yet? I don't think it is. I mean, you know, the IFS say it's unaffordable in 2050. Well, okay, fine. Yeah. That's, that's five electoral cycles at least or yeah. 10 on recent averages yeah, 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 yeah. you know so so you know i think you taking it parliament at a time i still think particularly for women you know the statistics on the contribution of the state pension to the incomes of women in retirement are absolutely staggering mm -hmm. you know it is more than half of the income of most women in retirement uh you know if we think db's dying at retirement now and the DC cavalry is 20 years away what's going to bridge that gap it's going to be the state pension yeah, and if yeah, we take yeah. output off the gas on that it's not going to be people like us who lose out and do you, do you think the triple lock is the wrong way to frame the debate um because because actually what you're doing is you're thinking about you know part of the narrative has been about the state pension needing to get to a higher level to play catch yes. up yeah yeah um, but that's, yeah, it, there's a journey of how you get to there in terms of policy and uprating. But, 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 but in a way, what we haven't had is the proper conversation of what that level should actually be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so, 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 so where do you, is there a better way of doing it other than the triple lock? Yeah. And I'm not criticising the triple lock, but how do we have that discussion as to where do we... Once a treasury man, to... always a treasury man, Darren. <laughs> Steve, you know. <laughs> No, I mean, I, I entirely agree. We've got to say where it is we're trying to get to. And something like a third of average earnings feels to me about right. How you define average earnings? Is it full time? Is it mean, mm. median, mm. including bonuses? You know, you debate all that stuff. Um, but it's on the t it's there. You know, the idea we would now sit down and say, right, our target's a third of average earnings and therefore we'll now destroy the triple lock and come up with some clever new, you know, earnings plus 0.25 or whatever. <laughs> I mean, why, you know, politically, it's the second you let go, 
you're not going to get anything back. Right. And I've just loved the way it's been so tough to break. You know, the Conservatives broke it once after the pandemic, which you can kind of see. I mean, I, even I thought you know, the earnings growth figure was a bit fruity that year. <laughs> but, but, you know, the fact that they didn't break it a second time mm-hmm. just shows how powerful having a rule is. So in a way, the rule, yes, my friends at the IFS think it's horrific and economically illiterate and unpredictable and all the rest of it, but it's doing a job. Mm-hmm. And there isn't another game. You know, it isn't another game in town, as far as I can see. Mm-hmm. Can I move us on to freedom of choice? Um, mm. So, uh, you know, as a as a defined contribution practitioner for the or oh, six seven years running up, um, you know, the the foundation platform was annuity compulsion. Um, yeah not for good reasons but as an actuary it just meant we understood what we were targeting uh in terms of investment risk management in the run-up you could you could build into that that piece um and then uh i i remember personally the shock of uh seeing uh the chancellor of the exchequer george osborne stand up and said let me be clear nobody will be forced to buy an annuity um and uh, i know that the dc industry was very shocked but if i could can we take you back emotionally to those <laughs> those hopefully uh hours days before um but yeah when did you first hear of it and and, and what did you think <laughs> yeah i mean so sometimes treasury would exclude DWP entirely from stuff. Mm-hmm. So when the lifetime allowance was cut in 2012, I found out on budget day and I was right. Yeah. So I've, I have been candid that there were times stuff happened that I knew nothing about. Mm-hmm. This wasn't one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all relative though. I mean, so it's probably about two or three weeks before the budget. That, right. That yeah. Dan, Cause you have to remember we had a Lib Dem in the treasury. So Danny Alexander in the treasury and Danny, mm-hmm. Danny rang me up and said, <laughs> Steve, I've got something to tell you. George wants to abolish the abolish the. And I think it may be the only time I swore. Right. <laughs> uh, not not out of hostility, but just out of shock. Yes. Really, because I'd yeah. been I'd been pressing for annuity reform. You know, yeah. I could see the the problems like every. You know, I was going around saying we're going to put you all into these wonderful pensions, and then annuity rates were kind of naught point, not very much. So, yeah, I exaggerate, yeah. but you know, yeah. we were saying, you know, and you'll have built up all this money, and at the end of it, you'll get virtually nothing for it. Yeah, oh, great. Yeah. So it wasn't yeah. helping auto enrollment. Mm-hmm. You know? And so, as a good liberal, I had always felt that it's your money. Yeah. You know, yeah. and yeah. because we'd done the state pension reform, because by that point, we knew the new state pension was coming in, and the new state pension was sort of at the poverty line. Yeah. So if you got a private pension on top of it, you were better off. Mm-hmm. And that was the key. And I remember a, a Tory minister standing next to me when this was announced or when it was debated and he turned to me and said we're doing we can do this because of your state pension can't we said yeah "Yeah." you know (laughs) so so it all it fitted and i think it made pensions popular yeah you know we sort of used to joke didn't we that nobody wanted to sit next to you at a dinner party but they do now Mm. you know well i don't know they do me james (laughs) you know but you know definitely not definitely not nico (laughs) (laughs) but i still remember close to the election in 2015 someone made an appointment to see me in the surgery and that wasn't Mm. always a good thing and he came and he said mr i just wanted to say thank you what he said you've let me use my pension i've used it to pay for my daughter's wedding Mm. or whatever it Mm. is and i've got a photo on the side of that and that was the happiest day of my life and he said you know i know i can't spend that money again i know it's gone Mm. Mm. but 
thank you, because it made the difference. You know, and I think if if it has made pensions seem flexible and attractive and interesting, you know, of course yeah. it's unfinished business. You know, yeah, of course yeah, yeah. stuff about well, what happens when you're 83 and you're trying to manage a pot of money and all that mm. stuff. And mm. is there still a place for later life annuities? Yes, I think there is. But you know, I, you have to remember just how appallingly low annuity rates were at the time, and just imagine mm. we mm-hmm. hadn't done it, and all the people today who'd be living on vanishingly small incomes till they die yeah, 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 because yeah. they were locked into terrible annuity rates. Mm-hmm. But, but, the, but the whole structure was all wrong at the time. So this was, you know, as soon as you um, create a product that you have to um, have and you rely on the private sector, i.e. insurance companies, to provide that product, you're going to have mis-selling written all over it, aren't you? Mm-hmm. You know, you really are. And, and I think that, um, you know, it wasn't just whether an annuity was the right shape of products or the right thing to aim for um i think there were issues with selling i think there were issues mm. with um you know people just understanding what an annuity actually was you know the different yeah. types of annuity annuity um single life versus joint life you get two figures you go for the well, inflation number, linkage or not inflation yeah. linkage escalating all of that the biggest one uh, yeah, yeah no exactly and and i think it was just too complicated you know, and, we and, one, and, and it's yeah, once and done as well i mean yeah it's not like a, another you know you 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 buy a dodgy mobile phone handset. You think, well, I'm yeah. not doing that again next mm. time round. But you buy a dodgy mm. annuity. Yeah, it's not yeah. good, is it? Yeah. You tried to yeah. reform yeah. that, didn't you? You you ran a consultation, didn't you, Steve? About um, was well, it yes, a se- se- secondary annuity market or something? Secondary wasn't it? annuity yeah. market. Yes. Yeah. So the I used to hear from people who said, well, hang on, I fell the wrong side of the line. You know, I bought yeah. my annuity in whenever it was late 2013 or something. Mm-hmm. And also the people with very small annuities. You know, ridiculously small ones for whom the annuity was useless and a bit of capital now would have been quite nice. So I, yeah. I the electorate intervened in my ability to do that, mm. and then everybody, the FCA, I think, hated it because you know the consumer protection around reselling of small annuity pods. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So. yeah. Do you think um, we need to get onto value for money and what is and maybe what isn't value for money? Um, <laughs> spoiler alert there. Um, but, 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 do, but do you think? Um, do you think um, our regulatory system or ethos is fit for purpose? Yeah. And I don't mean whether we should have one regulator, two regulators and all of that. Yeah. Or, or but, three, as or, or, I, I or believe I've proposed. I know yeah. you, you, you. I don't know why you would add to the number of regulations. <laughs> to you, but, I right. want a job. I want a job. Uh, no, no, no. But, but, but sometimes it feels to me, and, and, and when we talk about the advice guidance boundary review and, you know, mm-hmm. but this, so this is more on the FCA side, we seem to be always regulating to um, – for, for the worst case scenario. Yeah. yeah absolute yeah, yeah. worst yeah. case. And you can totally understand why. Yeah. Like, you know, um, Nico gets good advice from, um, you know, financial advisor isn't a headline, you know, um, in the in the papers. You know, someone actually losing lots of money or being scammed mm. or whatever is. And you, and you see, you totally get why regulators have that sort of mentality. But do we let the best be the enemy of the good on this? And mm. um, do we do we sort of overshoot some of that regulation? And what's prompting me to say this is your secondary annuity point, because you can tie yourself up in knots, yeah, in terms of delivering that perfect outcome. Whereas actually, you you can't get a perfect outcome. Just better would be okay. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I mean, I often say no one ever gets sacked for over regulating. You know, they get sacked for for not for not mm. stopping the scandal. 
Mm. But if they just clamp down on stuff so that things just never happen or not enough of a good thing happens, well, nobody even noticed. You know, we're not very good at counterfactuals. Mm. Um, and it's very, very hard to. I mean, so, for example, some people have said that TPR. So I gave TPR an additional duty, which everyone said was inconsistent with all of the other ones, which it was. But that was deliberate yeah. um, because they had, it's trying to say, look, you've got to balance. These this is the, um, the, the economic one, wasn't it? Growth, the, the growth yeah, duty. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Nico mentioned that 2010, we're coming off the back of the global financial crash. Mm. And businesses are saying to us, look, you know, interest rates are super low, which means our deficits are super high. So we're having to shovel money into our pension schemes just mm. at the point you want us to invest in growth, etc. So we said when TPR set its objectives, you'd have to have regard for sustainable growth as a sponsoring employer. So it's, that was a small attempt to rebalance. Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, so with the TPR concert, you could say that they had a duty to promote, I mean, not DB necessarily, but, you know, high quality schemes rather than just prevent the bad guys sort of thing. Mm -hmm. so so i think you could you could nudge it in that direction but there will always be you know a political imperative you know so why why do we get the 2021 pensions act pension schemes act which is the one that jails bad bosses mm -hmm. for underfunding right. their db schemes <laughs> just at the point where they're all going into surplus because yeah. we were reacting to the the 2015 crisis six years yeah. later yeah. you know yeah. So, yeah. so there's always this this pendulum going on um, and I don't, there isn't an easy fix, but I think giving regulators mm. positive, proactive objectives might might help. Yeah. So ju just one element of the pendulum that I've been quite fascinated to me and uh, just to get your views on. So master trusts. So, uh, you know, this was the Wild West for a period of time and is now uh, the most regulated uh, kind of industry in our nation. Right. So, um, uh, you know, was was master trusts. Did that was that a complete surprise? Was it just prioritization in terms of thinking of what DWP had to get through? Just give us a sense of that. It was remarkably late on the agenda, if I'm honest. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. so we, we, you know, obviously we created Nest, yeah. you know, and we were pleased that the Danes came in, as it were. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and I learned about BNCE and you know, people's pension and so on. And so I was kind of aware of them. Yeah. And then most of the insurers were offering group personal pensions. So I went to work for, for yeah. London group personal pensions. So the insurers then creating master trust, which wasn't really on my radar. And the yeah. idea that some bloke in a garage would create a master trust. Yeah. I think, it was a I think it was a shed, Steve. I think it was a shed. Yeah, <laughs> probably was. You know, so it's quite funny that, you know, Ros Altman and Guy Altman and people spent a lot of time creating a master trust framework, which mm. just hadn't really been an issue mm. for mm. me. And partly because the big employers who were first to stage for auto enrollment, you know, would kind of got in house schemes or big providers fighting yeah. over them. Yeah. So it wasn't really quite so much of an issue. Mm. I remember um, one of your phrases, one of your sound bites at the time. Um, which we were always good at the odd soundbite, Steve. Um, was um, we've they, we've uh, the auto enrollment train has left the station, but we're still laying the tracks. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And and I think he still used true, that. It? It, it is still true. Yeah, it is still yeah. true. But I think um, you know there was so much stuff around governance reporting and quality standards and charge cap. Yeah, yeah. that was yeah. your doing well, as well, I wasn't mean, it? The charge cap and quality standards was an absolute gobsmacking moment to me when I realized that, you know, so people often say, well, you just implemented Labour's auto enrollment legislation. Well, there's a few things still to do. And one of yeah. them was that there was absolutely no minimum standard or charge gap on what you were enrolled into. So you mm -hmm. could be enrolled into anything. 
yeah. any charge, any of that put, you know, there's just nothing there. So the most obvious risk was, was high charges. Yeah. So that was the first one we went for, but clearly, you know, master trust framework and all the rest of it, you know, but I couldn't believe that you'd set up a system where millions of people are going to be enrolled in something with no minimum standards. Was this, was mm. this, a, was this a sort of slightly unintended consequences and just, um, you know, government departments not sort of talking because as part of the auto enrollment stuff, I think the stakeholder legislation or some of it was, was repealed. Um, stakeholder had a charge cap. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a yeah. higher, it was a higher charge cap, but it was yeah. almost like there was an abolishment of something here or a pairing back of something here without some of the key elements being transported over here, over here. So I'm doing the thing you yeah. shouldn't do on the podcast by <laughs> yeah, it's of great radio yeah. yeah it's great radio <laughs> yeah. isn't it blimey yeah um but, but you see what i mean like um so 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 you know the standards were there they're not they're, they're not there and then you have to regulate to introduce the standards that were there before and extend them to other types of pension because obviously this was trust based and not just master trust based yeah i don't mm. i mean i i kind of it was before my time that that decision, as it was, wasn't right. vacant. Yeah. And, and because stakeholder was a Gordon Brown thing, and Gordon Brown was, you know, Chancellor for most of the period and then Prime Minister for the rest, it's quite surprising that he would think that you didn't need these. I, I wonder mm. if it was almost, mm. can't have been an oversight, can it? It must have been a decision, but you, you mm. wonder. Who knows, Steve? Who knows? I mean, um, there, was, there was a sense that the stakeholder sort of didn't work, right? And hence yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot yeah. of the reform. Yeah. So maybe oh, yeah. they just, it got tarred with that that brush yeah. yeah so, so gordon brown wasn't famous for acknowledging things that didn't work that were his yeah 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 <laughs> excellent excellent um, so steve um we need to talk about value for money yeah yeah what does value for money mean to you steve and are lamborghinis value for money that's oh, the real yeah. question did i take your favorite charity <laughs> did, I, did, I, did i take your joke down sorry you no you yeah. didn't no no i was going to be i was going to be a much politer to our guests so, <laughs> so I, was, I was thinking about this because i knew you were going to ask me this and i was very tempted to, to um what they taught my own book and say my weekly free column for this is money is value for money. okay I'm now, I'm now on column 300 and something just answering people's pensions questions wow. Wow. Uh, yeah. and i've learned a hell of a lot through mm. that and through mm. that we uncovered a billion pounds worth of state pension underpayments wow wow so uh I, yeah. 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 yeah they do and then and then when we found a billion pounds of underpayments they then went and did their first proper checks for 13 years and found another billion Wow. of uh, married women of mothers underpayment so they're in the process of handing out two billion of underpaid state pensions so i think that's been value for me i'd agree with that yeah i think a, a slightly boring uh value for money one is you know employer matching i mean you know if you put a pound in a pension it turns into two you know you yeah. read the weekend papers and you invest in you know vintage wines or something and get a seven percent return or something ridiculous mm. or whatever I, yeah, it's not financial advice um but you know the fact you can put in a pound and turn it into two overnight there ain't many places you can do that so yeah. that's value yeah. for money and i guess you go to me the same one that isn't and uh, you know we haven't got time to rant at length on lifetime we, provider and all you, that you can rant stuff. a bit we'll give you a bit of a, yeah. Small, yeah. a, a small a small rant you know you've got a system that is essentially a wholesale workplace pension system you know mm. the employer negotiates for all the employees strikes a good deal hopefully and everyone benefits in the workplace and the people who are trying to rip it up see the world through a retail mm. lens mm. so if you've worked for i mean let's pick a random platform Hargish Lansdowne let's mm. say 
Totally. Uh, or you, or yeah, or you work in in an industry that adv- you work for firm that advises financial advisors or something. You just see the world through a retail lens. It's not a character mm-hmm. flaw. It's just how you see the world. And if you see yeah. the world through a retail lens, then you think that everyone should own their own pension, and everyone should shop around, and everything, all that sort of stuff. But we know they won't. We know yeah. that, that yeah, you know, the winners of life's pensions lottery are fine anyway. Mm-hmm. And there's an awful lot of people who are doing pretty badly, aren't saving enough, and all the rest of it. And we're going to completely disrupt the system. Uh, and what will it do? I mean, I saw some figures today saying that Australia, with its massive and highly concentrated pension regime, has double the costs of the UK. Charge, charges in Australia double in the UK, partly because of all this deadweight marketing and competition. There are other reasons yeah. as well. So, so great. We introduced extra cost into the system. We take the high earners out of the bulk workplace arrangement. And what does that do for moderate and low earners? It doesn't yeah. give them value for money. So, you know, I, I don't think people propose this reform for malign reasons, but I think it would have malign consequences. Yeah. Is, it, is this the last sort of bastion of ideology that that kind of, you know, free market, uh, rational consumer versus behavioral finance default consumer? Is, that, is this the last place that we can find these sort of the, these poles of ideology? Yeah, you still get it. I mean, it almost it's almost heresy in the pensions world not, not to be in favour of, you know, engagement, financial education, and it will all be all yeah. right, you know. Mm. And, and of course, those are both good things, but you just can't have a system based on them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I would always say, you know, if you can get people in advice, if you can get them making the right decisions at the right time, that's that's absolutely fantastic. But you can't mm-hmm. rely yeah. on it. You can't rely on it. So, so Steve, it just 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 to pick up on lifetime provider, just just for a second, because there's lots of different potential models. There are. And, you know, so are. I think the, the the consultation was incredibly high level and, and incredibly quite general. Yeah. Confusing. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was quite confusing actually. Yeah, um, mm. but but I'm just going to play devil's advocate. Yeah, um, and I'm 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 with you on this. I'm I'm with you on your arguments. Yeah, but but say I um I don't know I was a people's pension. Yeah. And then I joined um, another employer, but I liked the people's pension so much. Yeah. That I just wanted my to keep a relationship and to keep saving with them. Wouldn't a lifetime provider help me do that and create that a, a better connection for me as an individual with my workplace pension that I've been auto involved into? So, I mean, a, obviously there's nothing stopping you leaving your money there under the no. current system so yeah, you can right. have a relationship a part yeah. of someone was and going to do pop for followers member and move it for, well, oh, well, yeah, with, with an opt-out you know yeah. and i think you know the way i thought of it the other day was this at the moment you can move all of your pensions bar the current one wherever yeah. you want yeah mm. and people don't no you no. know this idea there's this massive desire for choice and moving your money to your, you know your favorite pension scheme and you can do that with everything except the current one and virtually nobody does except yeah. if they've seen an advert for a consolidator with a good logo and good pr yeah. so it where is this un, untapped demand you know people are just not that attached to their pension provider the pension you know i just as an aside i did a i'm working on a story for this is money at the moment of a lady who's lost her pension Mm. Um, and she had paperwork from the 1980s with Norwich Union. And we've gone via Norwich Union and Aviva. We've gone via various administrators who've been taken over and merged. We've gone to Canada because it went to some Canadian thing who went bust. We're on about the seventh step of the journey. You know, mm. people lose this stuff. It gets moved. You know, they don't have, by and large, that great knowledge or attachment to a previous provider or whatever. So why particularly you then 
build a whole system around that mm. with all the mm. costs and the negative side effects. I just don't, I just don't buy it really. Mm. And at retirement, mm. you can shove it all where you like, you stick it all yeah. on your platform, invest it in whatever you like. You know, so it's literally we are only talking about the live pension contributions of your current employer. Everything else is free anyway. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Do you think it's the I think the PMI said it's the wrong consultation at the wrong time? You know, would you, would you, I, wish, would you... I wish I'd thought of that. Um... I, I was on the External Affairs Committee. I, I might have a little like trademark around around that. But there's so there's so many things going on that like it's yeah. It, you know, I I don't know. Like if it, it feels to me that I you know we've we've talked quite a lot about pensions and stability and it being a long term game. And and, mm. and like you, I like like all of us. We I love chatting pensions. I love thinking about the future and you know what what the next innovations will be and stuff. But it, I, I found it strange the timing of this just mm. before an election. Mm. Um, yes, because... I, yeah. I mean, whether if you're a party that thinks you're going out, you want to kind of land something you believe in ideologically before you go and and, and get it as established as you can. Perhaps it's that I don't know. But, but there's only so far they can take it, isn't there? Like, yeah. Cool, cool yeah, for yeah. evidence. They, yeah. they they can't legislate for it, and you know. But it'd be amazing this... if it overtook value for money that they've you know told the industry is so important. Yeah, yeah. Um, and or indeed Mansion House and you know UK PLC narratives. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that well, that I mean that's got to dominate, hasn't it? Because you know the mm. new government's already talking about you know or the Labour Party are also talking about exactly the same stuff for exactly the same reasons. You know yeah. you can't yeah. tax much more, you can't borrow much more. So no. where's the money coming from? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Nico, I think we're coming to the end. Yeah. Yes. Um, our, our listeners' trains are pulling into the station. Yes. Um, the 10k I, has been completed. <laughs> it, it has. Yeah. Um, I, I'm. 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 I'm so sad that I haven't been able to sort of recount some of my Steve Webb stories. Um, <laughs> Phew. <laughs> um, you know. Uh, but but I did. One of my proudest moments, I have to say, we were we were we were both speaking at an LNG event on uh, on auto enrolment, and this must have been. Um, I was at the NAPF at the time, so this must have been 2011, 2012. And I bumped into you with, um, it might have been Mr. Dinan Oakley um, in the <laughs> lift going up. And you said, all right, governor. Yeah. Um, and I thought, that's brilliant. I love that. You know, I'm being called governor by the pensions minister. So thank you, thank you for that. That made that made my decade. That did. So, yeah. so. Well, and, and thank you so much for coming on and being a guest on the podcast. It's yeah. been fantastic talking to you. Yeah, yeah it's been um, fun. Thank you both. And, yeah, um, and 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 that, that I loved your value for money um, uh, example of that state pension stuff, um, mm. and it's and it's why we used to dread your PQs that used to come into DWP <laughs> Treasury when you were an opposition minister because we we always knew you were onto something. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Steve. Um, great to great to chat to you. Mm. Um, who have we got next week, Nico? Uh, we've got Joe Sharples. Joe Sharples from uh, so... yeah. Chief Investment Officer of DC Solutions, and that includes the Master Trust. Uh, and yeah, we'll be looking forward to talking to her. Yeah, yeah fantastic. And then, got, and then we've got, I think we've got Joanne Seegers um, the week after. Yeah. So we're going to, yeah. we'll talk to her, Steve, about um, her Super Trust idea um, <laughs> that I know oh, she's yes. debated. What to that? Oh, yeah. I, I wonder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's just. Uh... <laughs> Well, we, we sort of got there in the end, sort of. But, <laughs> well, yeah, that's for, that's for two weeks' time. That's, that's for two, two weeks', weeks time. time. <laughs> so that, that, that's great. Thank you very much, Steve. Um, look forward to catching up soon. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in and listening. Um, yeah, so until next time, it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And so, Steve. Steve. Thanks, Cheerio. Cheers. <laughs>